Welcome to Wild and Exposed, your wildlife photography and outdoor adventure podcast. Today we have a fantastic episode to share with you. But before we launch into that, I just want to take a quick moment and request that you take the time to subscribe and follow along and show us the love, give us a thumbs up, the five-star rating, so those ratings help us to continue to bring you these podcasts week after week. Today, we're going to go behind the scenes and hear about the research of Alaska's longest-standing moose biologist, Dr. Vic Van Ballenberg. So I want to thank you for taking the time to talk with us today because I'm excited. I always enjoy visiting with you and just because of the amount of time you get in the field and have had in the field over these decades, the experiences you've had, the perspective you have is relative unique from where I sit. And even with the amount of time I'm in the outdoors with my wildlife photography and profession, I know and feel that you have had that much more again than what I have. So and we share a common uh, affection for these large animals and, and moose in particular. So I always enjoy talking to you and, and picking your brain on, on moose biology and, and your time and your experiences. Because the more time we're in wilderness, the more unique experiences happen. But also just more of a, like you're a behaviorist from where I see, right? And you've seen behavior, you understand behavior among wild populations to the point of individual behavior where you can see different personalities in different animals, but also on, on the multi-tiered level of looking at an ecosystem and how these species interact behaviorally and, and the relevance of those interactions as, as species in addition to individuals. So I want to thank you for taking the time today, and, and I know our listeners will enjoy it as well. But I want to start with your beginning, because to me, I obviously respect all the work you've done over these decades but I also appreciate from a biologist perspective somebody who studied wildlife biology the good fortune you've had to be in the field for these decades on the ground being a, a wildlife biologist who spent most of your time in the wilderness versus at a desk um, and there's so many people colleagues of mine that went through school and didn't have the opportunity like you and I, to be somehow connected with wildlife in our professions, even though it was their passion. And I know a lot of it's credit on you for finding the opportunity and making it happen and for doing the quality of, of research and work that you've done that, that has built your legacy and, and kept you in the, in the field for all these decades and could be the longest standing moose researcher ever. Um, I, I make the claim, I'm, I'm not positive that this is accurate, but I make the claim that I've spent more time in the field with wild moose than any other biologist in North America. Uh, I also make the claim that I put the first radio collar on a wild moose in North America. And I said that once at a moose conference in Newfoundland, and one of the Newfoundland, Newfoundland biologists stood up and said, what year was that? And I said, 1968. And he said, well, we put a collar on a moose in 1966. And I said, really, what happened? And he said, well, we never saw the moose again. So I have to modify my claim. I put the first functioning collar <laughs> on a moose in North America in 1968. Right. Okay. Well, let's, let's go back. I want to start just, and, and not to take a lot of time with it, but I want to go back because I'm from Eastern Ontario, and I, I 
well aware of, of your history and that you're from upstate New York, or at least that's where you grew, grew up. Right. So what was it in upstate New York as a young person, a young man, through your teens that sparked an interest and, and drew you toward wildlife and, and the interest in wildlife and the potential to do research in wildlife and study that? Well, I grew up as a farm kid. We had a family-owned dairy farm, and of course, there was this was in East Central New York, kind of on the fringes of the Catskill Mountains, and um, that country has a lot of wildlife, you know, white-tailed deer and raccoons and woodchucks and foxes and, and, and now coyotes and turkeys and the whole suite of typical species for that area. And... You know, as a farm kid, I spent a lot of time outside and started hunting as a as a very young kid and, and trapping and just always had an interest in in wildlife from that perspective. And of course, on the farm, we'd see a lot of wildlife and and we um, we actually were subsistence deer hunters. You know, we'd we'd eat a lot of deer meat in the winter time and. And so I was always interested in, bio, in biology and wildlife, and then I got a degree, my undergraduate degree in, well, in uh, biology. And I didn't even know that there was such a thing as a professional wildlife biologist until I was probably a senior in college. And when I discovered that, I thought, hey, this is something I'd like to pursue. So I applied to some grad schools and got accepted uh, at the University of Minnesota and went there in the fall of... 1967 and started a moose study and and finished that and then started a wolf study a couple of years later and and finished that and uh, eventually if you're a moose and wolf biologist you kind of gravitate toward Alaska at that time uh, the only place that had wolves was in the lower 48 was uh, northern Minnesota and Isle Royal National Park and, uh, you know, Alaska was the next place to look to, and so I was fortunate enough to be offered a job here and came here in, in 1974 and started my studies then and been here ever since. So your grad study was on Isle Royale? No, it was in northeastern Minnesota. I, okay. uh, I did a moose study there first first off, and, and then I, I, I did a wolf study that was one of the first uh, wolf studies done in in the U.S. Uh, you know, prior to that, there hadn't been much, and there were only a handful of wolf biologists in in North America at that time. Now they're kind of a dime a dozen since wolves have come back in the Northern Rockies. But that time, uh, pretty pretty rare. And that was a population distribution radio collaring study. Yeah, we caught. Uh, caught and tagged over a hundred wolves and and uh, had some radio collars and you know it was a basic ecological study we were looking at uh, territories and home range size and reproduction and food habits and the whole gamut of things that you look at in a broad-based study like that nowadays things are much more concentrated and specific and but back then no one even knew what the basic food habits of wolves were in that area. We knew that they killed deer and moose, but we didn't know to what extent they relied on other things like beavers and hares and even vegetation. 
Elaborate on that quickly, if you don't mind. What do you mean by vegetation? <clears throat> well, there was another uh, biologist there from a, a, another a school in, in, in the Twin Cities area who was also doing some preliminary wolf work, and uh, they were collecting wolf scats and analyzing those. And I talked to him, and he said, you know, we've been finding these a uh, lot of bear scats that have got raspberries uh, in them, almost total raspberries. And uh, and and uh, so I, I thought, wow, you know, that's that's not unusual. But uh, but then we were catching uh, wolves and tagging, you know, tagging and releasing them, and taking fecal samples right from the animal. And sure enough, uh, many of the scats that he was finding were not bear scats; they were wolf scats. Midsummer, you know, and red raspberries were common in that country. Country and uh, the wolves were were feeding on them, in some cases heavily. Mm -hmm. I've noticed that in uh, southern Ontario with the coyote populations in like part of our property is an old abandoned apple orchard. And in autumn, when there's an excess of apples that have fallen to the ground, they they'll consume a lot of apples. And again, it's the proof is in in the scat. You can just see it. it looks like a whole bunch of apple peels wound up together. Coyotes, yeah, are famous for eating quite a bit of vegetation. They Some like, more so they than like, wolves. Yeah, they like watermelons and persimmons and all sorts of things. No it's, kidding. We don't grow watermelons, so I like that. <laughs> That's a funny visual, a coyote getting a watermelon. So wolves do eat vegetation. That's surprising, but to a lesser degree than coyotes would. Okay. So in, when you came to Alaska, um, what age were you? I was um, just, I was 30. You were 30, okay. Yeah. And how was that when you arrived here? Was it mind-blowing? Was it what you were expected? Was, as far as the, the landscape, the wildlife, the what you, boots on the ground experience? Well, I was pretty excited, you know, because uh, of the opportunity here um, and um, the opportunity to, to be a biologist and to do some things that I hadn't been able to do elsewhere. And, and so I, uh, my first work was up in the Glen Allen area, the Nelchina Basin, and we had a moose study there that <clears throat> was designed to look at the impact of the pipeline on, on moose migrations uh, across the pipeline corridor. So uh, we went out and tagged about 250 moose, and uh, we had some radio-collared moose, and we tracked them year-round. For three years, I spent about 1,000 hours in the backseat of an airplane radio-tracking moose, and it was, you know, the, the access into that country was by airplane primarily. There were no roads into most of it. So I was like most biologists here at that time. I was an airplane biologist and, uh, and, and gathered a lot of good information and, and published uh, some things on, on that. And, uh, <clears throat> but I wasn't really able to do what I really wanted to do, which was find a place where I could observe moose directly on the ground, someplace that had good access and quite a few moose and relatively open habitat and moose that were uh, tolerant of people that I could observe without disturbing them. And so ultimately in 1980, I, f I found that place in Denali National Park and I sent them a research proposal and met with them and got approval to start that study. And uh, so I started that in the spring of 1980. And, and I 
worked there ever since, right up until last year. Now that study did it did it change over the years and decades as far as the focus or or what you built it as in the beginning as far as behavioral observation and and data collection in that sense did it just stay consistently through that through the years with that focus as far as I mean obviously you'd observe and measure whatever you could but maybe you could elaborate a little bit on that because I'm certainly interested to know yeah we had three main areas of inquiry um, <clears throat> And, and I should say at the outset that I, I, I've had quite a few professional colleagues uh, there, too, um, university professors, uh, um, graduate students, and, and others that have worked with me there. But anyway, uh, we, we had three main areas of, of research. The first was things related to habitat and food and nutrition of moose and, and all of that. And... We spent a lot of time observing moose directly, and uh, you know you could see exactly what they were eating, and you could count the number of bites, and and uh, and and estimate the rate of intake of food, and ultimately translate that into you know we'd analyze the vegetation and uh, ultimately transfer or ultimately uh, uh, predict uh, some things about forage intake and, and the quality of food and nutrition and how that all related to ultimately survival and um, their, their exploiting of that kind of habitat. Second area was um, population dynamics and uh, I've always been interested in, in predation on moose and trying to understand how that works and, and you know predation by bears and wolves and so um, we looked at uh, survival. You know, I had radio-collared moose that I followed for most of their lifetimes, some of them 15 years or longer with, uh, with radio collars on them. And we looked at calf production and survival and survival of adults and, and the ups and downs in, in the moose population as a result of that. And then the third area was uh, behavioral studies, a, a lot of work during the rutting season and trying to understand some things about not only what they did and how they behaved and the basic components of the behavior, but ultimately things related to mating success and why some moose were leaving more of their genes behind than, than others. And in the later years, that's, you know, the first part of the study in the early years, um, we spent a lot of time on the habitat study and later years a lot more time on the uh, behavioral end of it. So the habitat, I'll start there. As far as the salad bar, if I remember correctly, a bull moose can consume, is it 34 pounds of vegetation during summertime on a given day, approximately? Yeah, sounds about right. Dry dry weight. Yes. Uh, wet weight would be about three times that, really. No kidding. So that's, that's ambitious, but it makes yeah, sense because they can be up to 1,600 pounds for the big bulls or even larger sometimes, right? Yeah. As far as behavior, something I read about your research was the suggestion that it's actually the females that pick the males, just like in humans, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, in the sense that, um, well, it's it's kind of a complicated story, but uh, what, what happens uh, in Denali and in other places in Alaska is uh, 
you know, females form groups in, in the fall. And these groups can be as large as 25 different animals and, and uh, typically smaller than that, you know, typically five or six or eight or 10. But, uh, and and uh, then there's one dominant male that uh, controls access to that group through fighting and intimidation of other bulls and and uh, and 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 so um, you know by choosing a group and choosing an area where a group will exist during the fall, uh, females um, you know mate with whichever bull happens to be in charge of that group when they are ready to mate. And uh, sometimes the turnover in bulls can be extensive. I mean, I we had some groups that had four or five different bulls that were dominant at different times. And uh, so uh, she's not so much choosing a particular bull as she is choosing a group that will ultimately have a dominant bull regardless of which one it is. Okay. So they annually w rut in, in a similar vicinity. There'll be a certain area that they'll likely congregate in year after year without some kind of extraneous or outside disturbance. They should come back to that harrowing rutting spot. Typically, yes. Yeah, we had one spot where we spent a lot of time um, over several seasons <coughs> that had... Uh, you know, one of these large groups of, of 20 to 25 animals, uh, uh, females. Uh, the, the largest uh, group I ever saw on a given day, I think there were 23 cows and 12 bulls, although all the bulls wow. weren't there at the same time. Some of them came and went. But, uh, and, and of course, in a situation like that, there's nonstop activity during the peak of the rut when there's, you know, there might be three or four cows that are ready to mate on any given day. And, you know, so there's fights around the periphery, bulls getting into fights and younger bulls trying to come in and penetrate the group and, and uh, older bulls trying to keep them out. And pretty exciting to oh, I'd be, love in, to witness that. be involved that big in a that. group, yes. What are the factors <clears throat> of, a, of a dominant bull getting pushed out by another bull. I mean, obviously it could be a bigger bull coming in, but if you've got a big bull that controls a harem, is it, they just get worn out because it's just so much work to, to fend off everybody else. And then they're so tired that they get overrun by another bull. Is that kind of how it works or what, what are the factors that bring in other bulls to become that dominant bull over the course of the breeding season? To some degree. Yeah, they do. They do wear down over, over time because, they're so active, and, and of course they might get wounded in a fight and and uh, lose their dominance as a result of that, uh, or even or even killed. Uh, you know, and it's not always the it's not always the physically largest bulls, as with human boxers, for example. Uh, you know, there's there's size, but there's also courage, and and there's agility, and there's speed, and whole bunch of other factors and, and there's experience. Some bulls are well experienced fighting and others aren't. And so, you know, we had, I, I recall two or three years when we had uh, relatively smaller, younger bulls that were able to control a group just because they were aggressive and fast and courageous, you know, and, and uh, they were able to win fights and retain their dominance.
So it's just big love. They can get fatigued with all that attention. Mm. But um, one thing that I, I believe is true, and you can you can confirm this or not, is if, if there is a dominant bull, and maybe he's controlled the harem for a few days, and due to fatigue of defending the group and, and all the mating activity, um, is tired, not necessarily wounded or injured, and gets displaced by a bull that's in a fresher state physically, he may rest up. He may go onto the periphery, bed down, rest up for two or three days, and come back and regain control of that harem. Is that something that you've witnessed happening? We witnessed that, I think, only maybe one time. Uh, oh, I was hoping uh, it was more. I was hoping it was. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, we had uh, we had one uh, pair of bulls. I think they fought three times in in a couple of different days. But typically, if a bull lost a fight and lost control of the harem, he would go elsewhere and try to uh, find sing either single cows or smaller groups or whatever. Okay, so he he lowers expectations and and likely move on to other opportunities. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay, how far will bulls come <clears throat> to get to that harem? I mean, I've witnessed bulls like in Denali where you'll see a bull at Toklat. And then before long, he's out at Wonder Lake. Uh, we had radio collared bulls in Denali and elsewhere that uh, answered that question. Um, <clears throat> I had one bull that spent the summer in the Teklanika drainage, and he would start moving east in late August, and uh, he would end up in a place called Triple Lakes, which is uh, way east. Uh, a total distance maybe of of 40 or 45 miles from end to end. And, and then he would start working his way back uh, before the rut was over. I had other bulls in the, in the sanctuary drainage that would come into the mile 10, 12 area. Uh, so yeah, they, some of them, there's, there's a couple different patterns. Some bulls rut right where they spent the summer. Some bulls uh, move considerable distances from where they spend the summer to where they spend the rut. Uh, other bulls um, uh, wander, you know, they, they, uh, they just get on the move and they search for lone cows or cows with calves that sometimes occupy these little remote drainages and uh, they're, they're traveling the whole time. Hmm. For, for the benefit of our listeners, could you take a moment and explain why it is that Alaska Yukon subspecies of moose elect to have this hereming mating ritual for the rut versus the more southern and eastern subspecies that pursue one-on-one, like other, like deer would, where there's one female in heat and the bull seeks her out and, and tends her for her heat cycle, which is a couple of days or so, and then moves on to search for another female. Why such diverse strategy within the same species? Uh, one thing uh, is is the is the ratio of bulls to cows. In my Minnesota work, the ratio was pretty close to one to one, and 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 they had this tending bond uh, system that you described, where a bull would link up with a cow and stay with her, and it was one cow and one bull, and we didn't see any of these groups. But here because the mortality rate of bulls is higher than of cows. Uh, typically, uh, like in Denali, there's, there's no hunting to cream off the bigger bulls. And uh, even there, the sex ratio was, was roughly 
40 bulls per 100 cows. And so, you know, for every bull, there's two or three cows out there. And in some places where hunting is intense and a high percentage of the bulls are shot every year, there might be only 10 to 20 bulls per 100 cows. And so that, you know, creates the the opportunity to have these these groups form. Uh, the other thing is, you know, our habitats here in many areas are more open and uh, the moose communicate uh, differently than they do in these more dense eastern forests and so there's that. We intensively tried to understand which bulls were doing most of the matings and as you might expect it's, you know, something like 98 percent of the mating was done by uh, the the more mature, larger bulls, bulls that are 8, 9, 10, 11 years old. And so, um, you know, the many of the younger bulls are, are excluded from breeding under that system, at least, at least until they reach the prime age. Why, why do you think it is that, and I don't, I don't see a reason as to why, the eastern or more southern subspecies would have a different sex ratio than, than the more northern. I mean, especially in a situation if you were to take comparable populations and one, neither, let's say, in this, in this comparison are hunted, why would the ratio of males to females be different? Well, I think up here we've got grizzly bears and, and wolves, and they do kill bull moose mm -hmm. uh, at a reasonable rate. I mean, I in Denali, I've come across quite a few um, large bulls that were killed by bears, including some of my radio collared bulls. Uh, in fact, the, one of the largest antlered bulls I ever had at Denali was killed by a, by a bear during the middle of the rut. So, so there's, there's proportionally higher mortality on bulls as a result of predation. Plus, uh, large bulls, all this activity during the rut uh, really affects them physically. They lose a lot of weight and they have higher starvation rates during severe winters than cows do. And, and that tends to distort the sex ratio. So that, that seems to be a result of this very exciting breeding behavior of having a whole harem of females to tend to versus one potentially making the bull more fatigued and vulnerable to injury from fighting and therefore more vulnerable to predation. So the mating strategy itself could be explained as to why more of these bulls are preyed upon versus the one-to-one -one tending ratio. Less conflict if it's one-to-one -one and if the sex ratio, if they're only tending one cow, they're not probably fighting as often, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I didn't mention that either as another disproportionate mortality factor in that, uh, you know, bulls do fight a lot and they spar a lot and, uh, and, they, and they get injured fairly often. And some of those injuries ultimately end up being fatal, sometimes months later. We had some radio collared bulls that uh, were wounded during the rut and survived one or two cases until the following March and died of infections. Really? That, that that much of a delay. That's surprising they made it through the winter. Maybe just the colder months. I mean, you'd think an infection would claim them before March. Yeah. So bears mm. have a, a definite feeding pattern throughout the year. Like they'll go for berries and they're eating grass and they're doing all these things in, in the areas that they live within. Do they key in on the moose during the breeding season to know that that's a, a really, a definite food source? I think so. Yeah. I think just as they learn that calves in the spring are 
a good food source. They they learn that bulls in the fall uh, can be, and it's not all it's not all the bears. I think uh, I think there's you know uh, the the bigger bears tend to be more successful at killing bulls, as you might expect. Uh, you know, it's it's uh, not easy to kill a bull moose during the September. I mean, <laughs> I have a theory. I've 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 voiced this quite a few times. I'm I can't prove it, but I think it's accurate. What I seem to see at Denali in some cases was, you know, we get storms up there from time to time, and and you get quite a bit of wind in the fall, and I think some bears learn that on these windy nights. Uh, they can approach bull moose and uh, get close enough that they might not be able to, to do the same uh, when there is no wind. The moose hear them coming, but if they've got wind to cover the noise, uh, they can get close enough to make that final rush and grab a hold of that bull before he realizes what what's going on. Uh, and I, it just, you know, I, I saw some cases where I thought that probably had happened. And these are grizzlies, not blacks. Blacks are right. just... Uh, calf predation in the spring, whereas grizzlies would be have this autumn opportunity. I'm curious about this theory, and, and you know, I, I think there's certainly a, a something to be said for it, and I potentially agree with it. But I have a question: is why would it be bulls and not just any moose on these windy nights? Why wouldn't it, why they just start preying on cows? Or I think bulls uh, d that time of the year um, are less alert. Okay. And, uh, and too much testosterone. Yeah, they're just and, too and, confident and confident and less alert and less wary, and more focused on reproducing than they are on avoiding predators. And uh, not to say that you know that grizzly bears don't kill cows too on occasion. I uh, once I was on the paved road there in the park at about mile nine or ten. And there was a bus stop there looking at something down off the roadways, and uh, somebody said there was a moose and a bear. And all of a sudden, uh, this this moose uh, started running, and this bear literally ran her down and, and killed her, and uh, it was pretty dramatic. Another question I've been meaning to ask you that hasn't come up in our previous conversations, as I've been curious all these years, and I, I suspect it's just a genetic diversity thing, but why is it that these coastal moose in south-central Alaska versus uh, moose in central Alaska, like Denali, have much smaller brow tines? Is it, is, do you deem that to be purely genetic, or is there another reason that the moose along the coast um, in the southern areas just don't seem to develop as robust lower antlers? I really don't know. Okay. I, I don't have an answer to that. Is uh, that something you've noticed? I mean, do you see that? Or, or have you seen moose in other areas that are as robust that way? Not really sure. Uh, I, uh, uh, yeah, it's not something that I ever tried to figure out, I guess. Okay. As, as a photographer, I've witnessed that, right? Mm -hmm. So I see a lot of the coastal moose. And it's just something that uh, is so striking about the moose in central Alaska, they just have, and with, you know, with these lighter colored antlers of the northern subspecies and more reflective with this white, these white palms, as a photographer, those often blow out in images, so I have to compensate for that with my exposure. When these huge bulls lip curl and tip their heads back, 
that's hidden and you have this darker under layer of the antler which exposes very easily in the photos and that's where these front brow tines come into play because they're so impressive with these mature bulls uh, in the area where you studied in central Alaska and as impressive as these animals are along the coast as well I just don't see that the same way hmm. and and to just quickly one more thing on the hereming harem behavior uh, for the northern rut these moose do have wider antlers and they do have whiter antlers than their eastern relatives now that the belief behind that is that the cows can see these reflectors as we can i mean i love to go to the high point in glass and that's the best way in autumn to see a moose is you see these white satellite dishes out there popping out in the vegetation um, does that serve to draw the attention of the cows as well? And they say, wow, look at Mr. Big over there. I'm going to go see what he's up to. And, of course, it sounds like they gravitate more toward a traditional rutting ground than to where that bull is. But I guess I'm just wondering if there's any overlap here of, of a draw when they see that, if it's meant to attract the females. I doubt it. <laughs> so why are they whiter? Is it just, is it just what they're eating? I mean, why do the the Alaska Yukon moose have these whiter, brighter palms than than eastern moose, or even the Andersoni subspecies in Alberta? The way I've always understood it is the color of the antler comes from what they're rubbing on, right? And the dirt, right? And whatever sap and that color, and then they just can't reach those areas. I think is that's, that right. I think that's right. The the inner palms uh, don't get. Uh, rubbed like like the like you say the brow tines in the underside does but yeah the color is from what's the shrubs that they rub against when they thrash their antlers through the brush i disagree <laughs> but it's just good for debate i've spoken to other friends of mine other biologists and what and I, I i don't i don't argue the fact that what they're rubbing can darken their antlers but just for the sake of debate for a moment think about different subspecies of whitetails white-tailed deer. What you have with the Dakota subspecies, which covers Alberta, versus the eastern subspecies, the Alberta bucks have much darker antlers. It's like, and you can see it's almost like granulated wood dark antlers, where the eastern bucks have these lighter antlers. Now, they're both rubbing, both have poplar aspen trees in their habitat. Eastern deer have maple. and all, You know, I just don't see how rubbing is changing the color of their antlers. I believe, and I know I'm being bold here with present company, I believe that it, there's some genetic difference that is causing this coloration and and it could be tied into the fact that these subspecies have such different antler shape as well. I mean, but the color is part of it. But I hear what you're saying. They can't access the inner side of those those paddles and so they don't get rubbed. And there's some, you know, argument to be had for that them being lighter but then why are the eastern moose darker on the inside of their paddles are and, and the paddles are half the size i get that in the east because of the forest and i mean that was part of the philosophy or, or the hypothesis behind it is because these eastern moose navigate forested terrain and don't whereas the the alice's alice's Jika species in alaska yukon don't and they've grown these wider reflectors i think it's, a, it's an interesting conversation and, and i think it just stems back to our ongoing need to observe and research these animals and, and, you know, to understand them. But I don't believe this has been figured out. <laughs> yeah. Probably not. 
But um, it's an interesting conversation. I'll talk about moose with you all day, Vic. <laughs> so let's let's touch on another thing about moose populations that's present day that is coming up more and more frequently in my travels and um, is of growing concern with the southern populations that are drastically crashing in Manitoba and Minnesota. And people who care about moose, biologists especially, you know, are trying to figure out what's happening, how to manage it, if there's something that can be done. Is it purely a consequence of climate change and the warming climate and this large moose animal being susceptible or, or not as compatible with warmer temperatures because of these variables that increase and cause stress on them due to the warmer climate that we can elaborate on. But this is happening. There's a shift happening. And is, I guess people are hoping something can be done as far as wildlife management to help protect these species, or sorry, the southern range of the species. But at the same time, I recognize with this warming climate, there is some expansion happening on the northern fringe of their range too. So I don't know if the whole population is just shifting. I think the southern part would be crashing faster than the northern population will expand because it'll take longer for the willow and alder that they feed on to creep across this warming tundra arctic landscape versus the heat that's rising in the south that's causing more uh, winter moose ticks. Um, and these ticks live on the moose all winter long. I mean, that's a different phenomenon than black-legged ticks that people associate Lyme disease that are on their host for a few days at most, feed and drop off. The stress on these moose, um, if they're in an area where there's a heavy tick population where they could have a thousand ticks on them all winter long feeding and irritating them, is significant and causes significant mortality, especially if spring is delayed in that region, right, due to hair loss uh, when they rub because of the irritation and, and hypothermia in the spring. But aside from all these specific details that I've just mentioned, I, I know that as a moose lover, there's some concern with how quickly this is happening. What's your perspective on, on what's happening with the southern part of, of these populations, specifically in Minnesota and Manitoba and those regions? I uh, have followed it a little bit, not a lot. And, uh, I, you know, having worked there in Minnesota, I've, I've followed what's, what's happened there uh, closer than any, any place else. And, you know, as you know, they had a major research effort there, millions of dollars spent on trying to figure out what was going on there in northeastern Minnesota uh, over the last several years. And uh, they've learned some important things you know the the brain worm is is prevalent there and and results in quite a bit of mortality uh, as you say the the winter ticks are you know causing problems and and very abundant and by the way it might not be a thousand it could be a, a hundred thousand ticks on an individual moose. I remember hearing some research done in Canada, I think it was Saskatchewan, that um, they actually uh, were counting the number of ticks on some of these moose, and it was an incredibly high number, uh, each one taking a significant amount of blood. And then there's a predation element. Uh, one of the recent papers indicated that Wolves in, in a portion of northeastern Minnesota were killing moose calves at a fairly high rate, and that contributed to some of the decline. I don't have a really good understanding of, of all what's going on there, really, and I'm not sure that anybody does. You know, it's kind of a typical wildlife situation where we, we understand 
some certain elements, but we don't have a complete picture of exactly what the story is. And that's, you know, sadly, uh, fairly, fairly common. I, I get, um, understand that. And, and that seems to be the case where it's, there's so many variables potentially involved with this shift in climate that it's hard to put a finger on any one thing and understand it so far. And I know that from what I've read on the research and the, and, uh, there was a conference, I think a couple of years ago held in Manitoba to try and discuss this issue amongst wildlife biologists and it's a challenge because it's complicated it's not just one thing potentially yes. right it's a handful of stresses that that's causing this population to shift i just wanted to have the conversation with with you on that regard too so as far as the more northern moose like up, up here in alaska they're not as the winter moose tick does not exist here like it does in the southern part of the range not yet okay uh, although i think there have been some cases reported in the Yukon Territory. Oh, really? The expectation is that if warming continues, that eventually they'll get here. Well, let's hope not. But I tell you, living where I do, if it was only 10 years ago, I could wander anywhere in the forest and kneel down, lay down, whatever I needed to do to get comfortable, to take photos or just to wait, and I didn't have to think about black-legged ticks. Now they're just uh, five, six, ten a day. I'll, I'll pick off my pants and uh, as I walk off my knees, and it's changed my sum spring, summer, and especially late autumn enjoyment of, of wilderness in that area because of the risk. And I've you know had to be on antibiotics three different times because of it, and I have good friends that have been subject to Lyme disease and deal with those ill effects, and it's a serious issue. Um, so as these ticks whatever the species may be, migrate north. And I know that the moose tick doesn't carry anything that's uh, known to be threatening to people. Obviously, it's a big deal for moose. So it's, it's a concern as, as the climate warms and, and these ticks can move forward for various species. But one of the reasons I'm drawn to the northern wilderness at this point more than ever is I can enjoy it without looking at my knees every five steps. So yeah, keep doing research up here. You're enjoying this wilderness. So we talked to a guy the other day down on the Kenai, and he'd been fishing the Kenai for 30 years. And he said over the last 10, 15 years, he notices a difference in the temperature, a significant difference. Have you mm -hmm. noticed it in Denali when you're out there doing the research in the fall? And it, do you see a, like, is it warmer now than it was 15, 20 years ago? I think generally, yes. And I think the weather records will will substantiate that. But it's hard for me uh, because I remember shirt sleeve weather during early October in mid-1980s there. And I also remember other years when we had one year when I remember on the 3rd of October there was a foot of snow on the ground and the temperature was, you know, plus five Fahrenheit, but, uh, you know, so it's, it's, you kind of, your own experience uh, with some of these individual years kind of makes it hard to see an overall trend, but for sure there has been a warming trend. And what I've seen uh, strikingly in Denali is changes in the vegetation, 37 or 38 years. Um, things have become more dry generally and some of the spruce stands have expanded greatly, and uh, some of the shrubs have, have changed in composition and distribution there that I, 
you know, see. And one thing I've noticed uh, also is that we've had some years when there have been heavy, heavy insect infestations in, in recent years. And I don't recall that early on. Uh, there, was, there was one year, maybe you were even here at the time, I think it was 2004, 2005, when virtually was no color to the fall foliage. Uh, it was brown, and it turned brown in early to mid-August. And uh, that was due to um, an insect infestation plus, plus dry weather. And I don't recall seeing anything like that in earlier years. I think these certainly in the case, and also, you know, there's a whole big story about the spruce bark beetles here and climate change and how it's affected them and how climate change and warming has facilitated the spread of, of spruce bark beetles and the mortality that they cause in the spruce trees. And, and again, that's been in relatively recent years. You know, we're all impressed with the amount of time that you've worked in the field of over 30 years and and being able to witness this shift and this change in the in the environment and, and specifically what you just mentioned, the vegetation. That's significant. And as far as evolution and shift of ecosystems go, 30 years is no time at all. Right. Right. So to witness anything of significant change, even over three decades, is depends on where you're sitting, impressive or concerning, that that can happen in this short period of time, too. I mean, what has Denali looked like for the past 5,000 years? How much has it changed in, compared to the last 50 years? You know, it would be an in, um, impossible measurement, but interesting, you know, to think about. Because I think, I think the shift is happening quite rapidly, and to be able to notice it even in a 30-year window um, is interesting. It makes for interesting times as a scientist, as a biologist, because things are happening. And changing and to bear witness to that, not just from the mammalian behavior, but the whole ecosystem. I'd like to quickly, well, I've got two things. I don't, I hope you don't mind me bringing this up, but when I was reading, there's so many articles that, that you've been involved with and people love to ask me, you know, about any given trip, what's happened? Did something happen? Was it safe? Did the bears do anything to you? And of course, you know, I, I'm back, so they didn't, but once in a while things happen. We always have these thrilling things. And I, I invite you to tell us any stories that are, are unique about moose behavior or, or a thrill over, the, over, your, over your career that you've had uh, sharing space with these magnificent largest of the deer family on this planet. Um, but there's one that I read about of a bull, and I had a similar experience. So I, I, can, I, can, I can feel what happened here. And you don't have to share it if you don't want to, but there was a bull that you had scene that looked injured during the rut was standing on three legs and you walked up to it as anybody would you know as far as a photographer or a biologist and and wanted to get a closer look as to what was causing the injury on this bull and you had an unfortunate um, experience and it's and I'm not trying to paint this in a negative light whatsoever I mean things happen in life wildlife um, we love the unpredictability of it to an extent. I mean, the more time we spend with animals, we understand their behavior more and more as individuals. But things do happen. You know, it's no different than camping out and a, and a storm can come in that we didn't expect and we have to deal with that in, in the wilderness. Or we could be hiking through Chicago or Toronto and have somebody not paying attention. They're texting and almost hit us or hit us with their car. That, that stuff happens. There are accidents happen in life. This uh, encounter with this bull moose, you know, is 
probably one in 10,000 that you had and the other 9,999 were fine. But I was taken by the intensity of it and what happened. Um, and that this bull looked like he was injured and then he put that fourth hoof down and that changed your, your experience. Do you, do you want, do you mind telling the story? Sure, I'll tell it. Okay. This was not in Denali, by the way. It was over in the Glen Allen area. And, uh, yeah, there was a, a hillside there that had a fairly large bull uh, standing there, and he was holding up one of his front uh, feet. And I watched him for a while, and he was feeding, and he was kind of peg-legging it on three legs and, and holding up one hoof. And... At the bottom of this slope was a, a small pond, and uh, so I uh, I walked over there and got uh, kind of just a little bit above the pond, and and I thought, boy, I can get fairly close to that moose because I can outrun any moose there ever was on if he's on three legs, you know. But uh, so uh, I got maybe 25, 30 yards from him, and I was just observing him. And all of a sudden, he decided he wanted to charge, and so he came at me at a dead run. And what he wanted to do was to get in that pond, and I was between him and the pond. And so I did uh, the typical thing I have done more than once, started to run and tripped over a root and fell. And he uh, ran directly over me fortunately didn't uh, put his foot down on me or if he would have I'd have been seriously injured but uh, I, I can still in my mind's eye I can still see kind of the shadow of him passing directly over me and went down and directly got into that pond but uh, needless to say uh, I misjudged his injury and when he was running at me he was using all four feet and I, I remember clearly thinking, uh-oh, I'm in serious trouble. But uh, I was lucky. But it turned out, at, when looking back, that the fact that you tripped was also... Probably right. He, he probably would have hit me and, and uh, knocked me down if I had remi remained upright. Yeah. So he actually was injured, but he wasn't injured enough right. to not get around. Right. Wow. They're hardy, right? They're hardy beasts. So do you want to tell any other stories at this moment about moose interactions that stand out as highlights before I open up one other subject here? Oh, I'll tell one. Okay. I, I, I don't Please like, do. I don't like to tell too many of them because they give people the wrong impression. But it doesn't have to be a, a, a negative encounter one. It could be just what you've witnessed as oh. far as fights or something that just stood out as... But I'm not trying to stop you from telling this one. You've started that. But if, but if there's something, just some, you know, if there's a certain animal that you knew over the years and witnessed certain characteristics about him, I mean, that's very interesting to me. But, but please go ahead with what you began there. Well, let me switch off and, 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 uh, and tell another story. One thing I learned uh, there at Denali that when I was younger I had little or no appreciation of was how much moose... Um, actually have to make decisions in their lives. You know, some people think that moose uh, depend upon instinct and there's some, some sort of genetically patterned behaviors that they have and, and, and they don't really, uh, they're not really faced with making decisions. But 
Uh, in, in reality, they make decisions every day as to where to go and what to eat and which moose to associate with and how to avoid predators and whether or not to flee or stand their ground or any of that. Uh, and I saw a bull moose once. I, I, this, I have this one chapter in my book on this uh, very uh, unusual, exceptionally talented bull. I saw him do something once that really surprised me and taught me that uh, they, they really make complex decisions. I saw him uh, on this hillside, and he had a group, a small group of cows, I think eight or ten cows, with him, and about a half a mile away was another bull with another group of roughly equal size. And it was a, it was a warm late summer day, early fall day. And uh, at one point, something spooked the cows from this one bull's group, and they ran over and they, and they uh, got in with this other bull's group. And, and the bull that had been with them, by the time he got there, he was overheated. It's a warm day and he had to go half a mile and he was overheated. And instead of directly confronting the other bull, he laid down and, and he rested and uh, lost some of that body heat and, and got up and went down and ultimately fought and displaced that other bull. So he made a decision, hey, am I going to take that bull on now if I'm hot and tired or am I going to maybe rest for a while and, and go, go down there later? And that's the decision that he made. And did he take over? He did. Yeah. So, I mean, that's I observe that all the time across various species. I mean, they all have brains, and uh, I I have this debate. It doesn't actually come up very often, thankfully, about in instinct versus actually having a brain personality making decisions. But all these animals, I believe, do, um, just like we do as humans. We live in our world. We have our perspectives. We have our senses, which, albeit, are limited compared to other species on this planet, but I think every, they're all built to be, to evolve to the point where they are, to be perfect at what they do in their ecosystem, and they have the ability to think and make these decisions. So it's, I think as a biologist, it's one of the most rewarding things to observe that yeah. and, and to interpret that and to see that individualistic behavior, that character. Sure. Right? Right. And, and admire that in the sense that he made that decision to rest and then regain control. Right. Did you ever see a moose where you're like, this guy's never going to make it? <laughs> he just doesn't have the wits about him? No. Uh, I think there's minimum standards that uh, they have to meet uh, in order to get to adulthood. And once they get there, they're going to probably survive for, for a time. It's those that don't make it. I've seen it in, in different species. Look at the earlings, right? Look at yearling white-tailed deer, hmm. bucks. It's their first rut on their own, and they're as naive as can be. They'll pop out and say hi to anybody or anything, right? Another right. year or two later, if they've survived, they've learned, and they're far more secretive and right. and uh, and smart at avoiding threats. So with your time in Alaska and being so involved with moose research, um, obviously that ties into, into the predator populations too. And with your background with wolves, um, I... I wanted to ask if you wanted to talk about the relationship between moose and wolves or if there's anything you wanted to cover on predators as well. I mean, Denali has, in Alaska, I mean, there's research, moose research has been done in various places across North America, but, you know, Denali is one of those places where the wolf populations have been observed for a long period of time and, and is a privileged, um, as a biologist, a, a privileged opportunity to have these populations and, 
and especially from your point of view of, of working there for all these decades, um, I mean, I've seen the population, the natural fluctuations, or what I deem to be natural fluctuations in, in Denali in the, um, National Park because um, it takes, there's been peaks of wolf population and you know, predator-prey cycles that happen naturally. I know there are other influencers that impact this because wolves don't always stay in Denali National Park because they have a large home range. I didn't know if there's anything you wanted to touch on in that regard. Well, Denali has offered the opportunity to um, really understand some things that uh, couldn't couldn't really be interpreted from studies in other places. There's there's about a hundred years of information at Denali. I, w I won't say data, but but information on what the moose population uh, has done over that interval from the time the park was established in 1917 until the present day, roughly 100 years. And what that story tells us is that the prevailing model for predator control and, and, and management of predation on moose uh, has some shortcomings. And, and the prevailing model, one thing that it says, and, and, and this model is based on research that was done here in Alaska and Canada during the 1970s and, and 80s. And that research, uh, not only with wolves, but with bears as well, has uh, produced this, this model. And one of the things the model predicts is that if you don't control the wolf population, or you don't reduce the, the, the predator population, uh, bears and wolves, that the predators will drive moose down to a very low density and keep them there indefinitely. Some people call that the predator pit, okay? So uh, the Denali situation, 100 years of, of information, has allowed us to kind of test and see if that model's accurate. At the time the park was established, and for the first few years beyond, into the 1920s, uh, moose were scarce There's there, at the east end of the park. There's no doubt about that. Moose were relatively scarce, and, and part of the reason was because of market hunting, which went on at that time quite extensively all through the that portion of the Alaska range. But anyway, moose were scarce. During the decades of the 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s, Moose increased. There really, there was a little bit of wolf reduction that went on in Denali in the 1950s and early 60s, but it was insignificant. And so the Denali moose population was in fact able to, to rise from a relatively low density to a relatively high density over those decades in the presence of bears and wolves that were not controlled by, by humans. You know, I think uh, that's a significant finding, really. As far as well, the bear, th as far as bears, uh, one of your research studies mentioned that I have the statistic in front of me momentarily. So, for um, a moose calf study, it was of the mortality, 53% were killed by bears and only 6% by wolves. Um, I think that was in Denali. And just so our listeners know, for those few that might not be familiar with Denali National Park, it's an extensive park. It's the size of the state of Massachusetts. 
So it's got a lot of land there and, the, and, and an ability to observe these wild populations. And your Glen Allen study area expanded uh, on this statistical study to kind of affirm that it was mostly bears, not wolves, that were preying on the calves anyway. Yeah, in Denali, we, uh, my colleagues and I um, had this calf survival study uh, for several years, and uh, we used our radio-collared cows, and my job was to go out every day and, and locate these, these cows every day or two and determine uh, if they had a calf, and if so, uh, whether or not it survived, then determine the uh, cause of death. And as you say, 53% of the ones for which we knew the cause of death were killed by, by bears and, and only 6% by wolves. And, and that's generally been the case several other areas of Alaska, the Kenai Peninsula, uh, the area uh, north of Toke, uh, the area around McGrath, where there, there was quite extensive large-scale research on, on uh, this matter, um, uh, bears were the kind of the dominant predator. When I first started going to Denali, probably 20 years ago, and it was before that I was looking in this book and a guy had a picture of a white moose that was over there on the, I guess the east, over by Healy. Did you ever see any white moose in the park? Yes. Really? Yes. There's a there's a long record of white moose uh, in the park over the years. In the 1930s, there was a white bull at Wonder Lake. And then sometime, I think in the 50s, maybe the 60s, there was a white bull that was shot just, just north of the north boundary. And there were periodic sightings uh, over the years. And um, in 1984... Uh, I saw a white cow at about mile eight in the park, and uh, I photographed her, and I've got a picture of her in my moose book. Uh, and um, she was a fully adult, mature cow at that time. And she wasn't pure white. She had some, some blotches, small brown blotches on her. Her face and, and neck were pretty much pure white, and she was not an albino. She had brown eyes, and but this white coat. And I didn't see that moose again until the spring of 1990, six years later, when she showed up uh, close to the close to Healy, and she uh, hung out there. I think it was in May, April or May. She hung out there fairly close to the park's highway uh, for about a month, and a lot of people saw her and photographed her. And then she disappeared. And if she was fully mature, I think, you know, it's very hard to age cows, but if I had to guess in 1984, she was probably, you know, eight or ten years old at that time, and six years later she was whatever. But... Uh, yeah, she disappeared then, and I don't think anyone ever saw her after the spring of 1990. But uh, I've got a picture of her in my book. Speaking of which, you've been taking pictures for quite a while. Bought my first single-lens reflex camera in 1968. And, um, yeah, I've taken quite a few pictures. So did that play a role in your research as far as documenting behavior to help supplement what you did for research? Yeah, my uh, what I did in Denali was to try to take a picture of every bull that I saw 
uh, so that I, you know, I, I would I would record the uh, antler structure, whether they had marks in their ears. Quite a few bulls get notches or splits in their ears from fighting, and their and their bell. Uh, and so I could identify those moose sometimes from year to year without having them collared. So I tried to take a picture of every bull that I that I saw there during the fall. And then, you know, documenting uh, different things, different behaviors, uh, taking photographs uh, of that. And um, I've enjoyed a lot of your photography over the years, just well, because of the behavior you're able to document. And I've enjoyed photographing with you. And if I remember correctly, our last time hiking together, uh, we'd spotted a bull um, in the back in the back country, and uh, it was one of those days where the mountain range was exposed. And the bull was below us, and we had a bit of a hike to go to the plateau. And I, I don't know if it was just my youthful vigor. I took off ahead of you, and you assumed I was going to have a good path to follow through the willows. And, and, and these plateaus in this country are, you can walk across a plateau, across a berry shrubbery. As long as you're high-stepping it or follow a game trail, it's quite easy to, to maneuver through. But then every time it, there's a, a drop in the terrain, there are these willow thickets. And they're like, they can be a jungle. Or you can be fortunate and find a game trail through it and go through with relative ease. Well, I started through, I thought I was on a game trail, and then that kind of stopped. And I knew the bull was still out there, maybe 150 yards further away, and wanted to get there as soon as possible to photograph it. So I pushed through the willows, and I think by the time you joined me, you, you declared that was the last time you were going to follow me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember it was pretty dense and hard to, hard to get through. But worth it, wasn't that? Was a good shoot that it day. It was. It was. Yeah, it was a with beautiful mountain, mountain in the background and good light, and yeah, it was great. And and a charismatic bull, and uh, so your book, I have to say as well, I have read everything on moose. Um, you know, the scientific book out of Colorado, um, the Encyclopedia of Scientific Papers, published at that time, is something that I own and and use as a reference tool. But I'll admit not reading that cover to cover, just looking for what I need specifically. But as far as the popular media of moose books, I have and I've read them all over the past twenty five years. And when I was researching my moose book, um, was reading all kinds of them, and, and yours um, was the most engaging of all the books that were out there that I read. And not just because of the scientific information in it, your experience in it, but you made it personal. And that's something I've always enjoyed doing in my writing. And I know that the general public appreciates because there's a personal flavor to it rather than moose do this and do this and do this and do this and here's a picture to support it. But there are these anecdotal stories and I've heard other people say that about your book as well. So I found it very engaging and I want to give you a high five because you presented your book with this useful information but in a form that's so user-friendly and entertaining all at the same time. And uh, I really enjoyed that part Well, of thank it. you, thank you. Yeah, and... and Similarly, uh, your book, I thought, was very well done, and, and the photos are outstanding, far greater than mine. I'm really not. I'm, a, I'm an amateur, amateur photographer. Um, once in a while, through sheer luck, I get a decent image, but uh, the photos in your book are magnificent. Well, I, I'm going to beg to differ. We're hugging it out here a little bit, people. <laughs> There's some love going around the table, but... With the amount of time you've had in the field, there are unique images in your book that I enjoy, and I'm so grateful to have it as part of my library. And so I'm going to spin that further and say, 
you know, for the price point of each of these books out there, um, anybody who's in, in interested or uh, have an affinity for moose or natural history for that matter, um, these animals, you should have both of our books in my opinion. Well, tell us the name of your book, and I want to ask you, how long did it take to put, to put it together? I mean, was that a, well, obviously your pictures are probably a huge span of time, but actually writing it and... Uh, the name of the book is In the Company of Moose, and the publisher is Stackpole Books. Um, there's a second edition now that came out, I don't know, three years ago or so. And um, I don't know, it took me probably 12 or or 14 years to get the photographs together and uh, the text kind of evolved over time I, I thought about writing a book for quite a few years and I you know I, I scribbled down a bunch of notes and just thought about it and organized things and the actual writing of it went fairly quickly but uh, took a lot of preparation to get to that point well Yes, buy both of these books because they're both affordable and they complement one another and really and really give a great uh, synopsis of moose country. We'll put links in the show notes so you can click right to it. There you go. So Vic, I want to thank you very much for taking the time. I always enjoy your company and, and for taking the time specifically today to take our listeners behind the scenes of what it's like to be Alaska's moose researcher, the longest standing moose researcher <laughs> in possibly world history uh, in North America, in Alaska. Your legacy is second to none, and uh, I, I've always enjoyed talking to you and hearing your stories from the field because you're one person who I know when, you know, I've spent as much time in moose country as I can, um, but if there's anybody who's had more time with your boots on the ground out there, it's you. So I, I enjoy your company, and thank you for taking the time to share that and your stories and your insight with our listeners today. Okay, well, thanks for having me. So thanks for tuning in, and uh, feel free to, you know, what, no matter what platform you're listening to today, um, show us some love, give us a thumbs up or the five-star rating, and follow along and subscribe. You can find more of our material at wildandexposed.com if you haven't been there already, and our website has a lot of different information on it, as well as the show notes for every podcast, so you can see images from the behind the scenes and links to the information that we've talked about as well. Until next time, thanks for tuning in. Enjoy the outdoors and uh, have good luck shooting.